So how many listeners? Welcome to Anti-Aging Unraveled with Dr. Lori Gerber. The body is one of the most complicated systems in the universe. Dr. Gerber and her guests explore integrative medicine and cosmetic dermatology, combining traditional medicine, alternative health practices, new innovations, and technology, which work together to help you look and feel natural and age gracefully. Now, here is your host, Dr. Lori Gerber. Hi, everybody, and good evening. Um, Welcome to another rainy day in uh, Philadelphia. I'm going to hope there's no technical difficulties tonight, but it is raining again, so we'll see how it goes. But I'm happy to bring you a new topic this evening. We are going to be discussing cosmetic surgery versus injectables and lasers. And really, which one's right for you? There's so many questions and there's so many things out there. So I brought in an expert in the field that is going to tell us tons of things that I have no idea about, and that is Dr. Oren Friedman. Um, He is on with us, and I'm going to try not to mess up his... uh, resume here. He is the director of plastic, facial plastic surgery at the department of otorhinolaryngology. You guys say that three <laughs> times fast because I can't and I've been saying it for years at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's the co-director of the facial plastic fellowship program as well in the ENT department of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, he's been doing that for almost uh, what, like 10 or 11 years as the director and um, several years as the co-director of the fellowship. So I want to welcome him to the program. And we're going to dive in a little bit and just talk about him because, you know, he tells me he can talk about himself a bit. So um, I want to know how he got here. I like to know where everyone's coming from these days and how they ended up in medicine. And it's changed so much over the last uh, decade, at least even since I've been out. So I'm curious. So without further ado, Dr. Friedman, I'm going to welcome you to the show. Well, thanks, Lori. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a real privilege. Well, thank you. So let me ask you a couple of questions. So I, I was looking at your resume and, and wanted to know how you got here. How did you get into medicine? What brought you to this field to begin with? Well, uh, the decision to go into medicine started way, way back. In fact, a friend of mine, uh, a friend of my mother, no, a friend of mine from school's mother made a comment about um, my uh, wish for uh, the future when I was in seventh grade, I think, at the end of school yearbook. Um, And my comment was, I wish to be a successful doctor. And she was really uh, taken by the uh, word successful, which I never really gave any thought to. I just assumed all doctors are successful and that was fine. So, uh, but she uh, uh, specifically mentioned that uh, 20 years later to me or something like that. So I thought that was... uh, uh, funny. So for as long as I can remember, that's kind of what I wanted to do was to be a doctor. And over time, uh, what I realized was that I really enjoyed um, uh, the art and the imagination that's required in plastic surgery. Uh, I kind of realized that early. My grandfather was an artist. Um, he uh, was, um, in fact, I was just in New York City this week, walking down Fifth Avenue and seeing some of the display windows the few that are there um, currently because of the situation, they are not putting much into them, but typically around Christmas, those beautiful storefront windows, and that's something um, one of my grandfathers did. And so like that artistry, I guess, is something that uh, was passed along uh, through the generations. My mom is also quite artistic, and um, uh, that's just kind of what I gravitated to ultimately was plastic surgery because of the creativity that goes along with that. 
but that's why we get along. It has to be it. You know, <laughs> our, our connection is definitely there. So, I do see the beautiful art hanging behind you. So that's kind of <laughs> cool. Yeah, I can't take credit for that. I'll put some of mine up later in the maybe the next show. There you go. Um, so let me ask a question. So when you were younger, did you always know that you wanted to do surgery? Were you always a hands-on kind of kid? I mean, I know I, I didn't know where I was going to end up. So pediatric cardiac surgery was my, was what I wanted. So that's pretty cool too. Yeah. I mean, that'd be a different show, but I'd be interested <laughs> to hear about that. <laughs> um, well, uh, when also when I was a kid, I remember um, hearing about uh, plastic surgery of the nose uh, through someone that I knew. And my dad happened to my dad was a professor and um, he helped this person um, through that process. He was not a surgeon, he was a basic science professor, but he helped the person through that process and got to meet the surgeon who was um, doing that surgery. And um, hearing from my dad, his thoughts about the surgeon uh, and what he was doing, and he just sort of put him up on a pedestal a bit. And um, I guess that kind of stuck with me, uh, I think is what ended up happening. And so uh, I always had that as a vision of something that my dad respected, I guess. And I think maybe that's what drew me to that. Um, it's hard for me to really uh, put a finger on, on that, but definitely I was a tinker. I like to get into things. Uh, when I viewed myself as a physician, I kind of viewed myself running around the hospital and um, uh, the offices and um, just being able to help people. Uh, and, you know, as the training goes on, medical school and residency and so forth, um, you kind of see where you fit in based on personality. Each specialty seems to have a personality, orthopedics, urology, brain surgery, uh, plastic surgery, uh, and specifically facial plastic surgery is a little more delicate and uh, I'll say a little more refined uh, it's more fine-tuned than whole body plastic surgery. And um, uh, that just felt right to me. Uh, so maybe that uh, combination of my dad putting this nose surgeon up on a pedestal for me and uh, my liking to tinker on a small scale uh, really led me to this. And surgery was, the, the idea for surgery was just a no-brainer. It was just natural. When I, when I went through medical school, um, that's definitely what I was uh, attracted to through the different rotations I did spend a lot of time on cardiac surgery, actually. <laughs> Maybe I was a glutton for punishment, but oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was meant to do six weeks or eight weeks and I ended up doing 12 weeks of it, which was really cool. I love that. It's very cool and very difficult, but yes, agreed. So, um, all right. So you spent time in Philadelphia, you went to Minnesota, came back, city of brotherly love, um, love it here. Right. So let's, let's, let's dive into this a little bit. So I think you know, when I looked at this topic, um, because I get questions all the time, you know, what should I do? They come in and they want all the time. And I know you guys can't see the camera, but all I'm doing is pulling up on my face a little bit on my cheek line or my jawline. I just want this, or I just want to pull up on my brows a little bit. And, you know, for some people that makes sense. And for some people it doesn't because you need to pull up a lot, right? So there's, there's two different ways to look at this. And I feel like, you know, we have the surgical patients that are surgical candidates because really, I might not be able to do enough for them as an injector. And then there's the people that you can get away with maybe lasers and injectables. So we're going to tease apart the differences. And I think having Dr. Friedman on here for a lot of the surgical information is key. So, um, you know, I think the first thing that people ask me all the time is, 
you know, what are the different types of facelifts? When we talk about kind of a lower facelift, we have these mini lifts, we have these mid facelifts, low, like there's so many different words out there. Um, and people don't understand the differences. So without getting too crazy, I think we want to kind of break down these types. So what are the differences? <laughs> right. Well, right. Well, something that sort of uh, uh, covers all different areas of the world that we all know about is marketing. And so some of these different names that people can't understand because, you know, let's say S lift or um, max lift, or as you're saying, mini facelift or rapid recovery, whatever it might be people are trying to market themselves in a, a specialized way and make something sound really sexy um, uh, regarding facelift. Uh, but you know, there's some basic fundamentals to a good surgical outcome. And we'll talk about those as the hour progresses. Um, but just sort of in short, I would just give a, a brief uh, synopsis uh, to answer the question that you had. So, uh, when someone's eyebrows droop, one of the earliest areas of aging uh, that affects us is uh, where the eyes look older. And when you're looking in someone's eyes, they don't look as young as their stated age. And when they themselves are looking in the mirror, uh, they look more aged than um, how they feel inside. They feel really, really fresh and uh, vibrant on the inside. Uh, but when they look at themselves in the mirror, they're seeing this old person looking back at them and they don't recognize them. And so one of the earliest signs of aging comes in the area surrounding the eyes. And we know that the eyebrows uh, play a significant role in this. So an upper facelift refers to elevation of the tissues of the eyebrow um, in order to create a nice opening of the eyes. Uh, we like to think of the eyes as the doorway to the human soul. Um, I have these um, images of uh, various uh, television characters um, and, you know, you can see the sadness expressed emotionally uh, through their eyes only. So you can really read people's emotions when you look at them and look at their eye area. Uh, so sadness, anger, you know, anger, sadness, uh, frustration and so forth um, can be viewed through the position of the eyebrows and the size of the aperture of the eyeballs, of the eyes, where the eyelids lie. And so an upper facelift implies that we're doing something to get the eyebrows up out of the eyes so that they're not covering uh, the eyes and they're allowing someone, uh, either the patient themselves when they're looking in the mirror or someone that the patient is communicating with to be able to see that person in their eyes. Um, and make eye contact. Uh, and that is amazing how uh, rejuvenating that is for a patient. Simply elevating the eyebrows and removing a small amount of skin from the eyelids is tremendous at um, creating better communication and a more youthful appearance to the person's face. Well, actually, we just got a question on that too. So, and it's coming from Facebook. So they want to know when you lift a brow and you do um, the lids, what kind of downtime is someone looking at and how long does the actual surgery take? Like what's the procedure like? Well, that's a great question. And there are a number of different uh, approaches to the brow lift. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of minimally invasive surgery in general. And the reason for that is it's more rapid recovery. So for the eyebrows, 
um, eyebrow lifting uh, can take place in a number of different ways. Uh, my preference is called the endoscopic brow lift. And the endoscopic brow lift allows all access incisions to be behind the hairline. So two incisions behind the temporal hairline, two incisions behind for people who have a good hairline, not like myself. Uh, I, know you guys can't see it, but. <laughs> uh, the hairline uh, lies um, uh, or the incision lies in a place uh, within the hairline. So it's totally invisible, okay. uh, literally invisible. And so you can access the entire forehead and brow region and even the upper eyelids through that. I also do a brow lift through what's called um, the uh, uh, eyelid crease incision or a blepharoplasty incision. So it's called a trans blepharoplasty brow lift. So literally through the same incision that's made to do a simple eyelid lift, uh, which has a really rapid recovery. So through that same incision, we can do a small brow lift uh, through that same incision. So that's pretty incredible. Uh, and the recovery for both of those is really rapid. I would say one to two weeks. Now, um, it'll be a few weeks, maybe even a few months before the patient's sensation comes back completely uh, to the forehead and scalp area. Uh, but uh, from a standpoint of returning to work, uh, we're talking about one week off of work uh, and they'll have excellent healing. after. What about that. exercise? Uh, exercise, I like my patients getting out of bed and walking around immediately after surgery. I want them walking their dog one day after surgery. I think getting up on their feet quickly helps to get the blood flowing, helps gravity to do the work of uh, getting the, the swelling uh, resolved a bit quicker. So um, I want them up and about walking around from day one and then starting to get to slightly more vigorous exercise uh, a week after surgery. At that one week mark, uh, I tell them you can start to um, ramp up the vigorous nature of the exercise you're doing, um, but when you start to feel throbbing sensation or pressure sensation in the area affected, then I want you to know to slow it down at that point. And then each day they can increase it as, um, as their body tolerates it. And that's gonna be judged by how they sense it. And that works out really well because I want the patients to push themselves so that the swelling can go down quicker, but I don't want them to overdo it so that the swelling is increased because of too much strain or stress. So that's a good way for them to gauge it is on their own. So all my workout girls that are worried, because that is that I'm telling you, that's the messages I'm getting right now that are worried that it's going to take too long to get back to workouts. So you're really looking at about a week to two weeks of maybe not as aggressive workouts, but then kind of being able to go back as tolerated. Exactly right. Okay. Yep. Okay. So that's, that's the windows to the soul. That's your eyelid lift and your um, brow lift or your bluff and your lip, brow lift. Um, what about kind of mid face region? So, um, folds around the mouth, um, guys that don't know, this is called nasolabial folds, cheeks, um, the depressions in the front of the cheek, maybe jowling area. Well, so that's a great question. And it goes right along with endoscopic brow lift. So amazingly through those same incisions that we're using to raise the brows and the eyelids in that, uh, behind the hairline those uh, four or five tiny incisions that are completely invisible. So through those same incisions, we can actually access the mid-face to do a mid-face lift. So doing a mid-face lift, if you think about when, you know, when we're looking in the mirror, uh, we get to about age 30, we start to see a little bit of the uh, um, uh, dark circles under the eyes, let's say. 
Um, and that occurs because of loss of some volume in the lower eye to eyelid cheek junction. The junction between the lower eyelid and the cheek um, loses out on some fat and there's some descent because of gravity. Uh, there's descent of the mid face um, fat and volume tissue. And so our goal in all of the different rejuvenated procedures is to try to blend that. A good way to look at it is think about a baby's face and how full it is. Um, and there's only one mound of tissue from the eyelid margin all the way down the cheek. And that's kind of what we're going for when we wanna rejuvenate the face. We wanna create one mound from the eyelid margin to the nasolabial folds basically. And um, so a mid facelift through an endoscopic brow lift is a beautiful and very powerful technique where through these totally invisible incisions, we can enter, get into a plane just over the bone of the cheek and then raise that whole mound of tissue back up to where it belongs up higher on the face, giving a more um, baby-like appearance. Um, now we can supplement that with various things. We talked about injectable fillers uh, and we'll get into that um, more deeply later, but um, we can fill in some of those grooves that remain uh, with either filler or with fat at the same time as doing one of these mid-face lifts. Um, another small incision that we make for that mid-face lift to really access things in cases where we want to get maximum efficiency is I might make a small incision inside the mouth along the upper um, gum line uh, where the cheek and the gum join. There's that little sulcus, uh, um, a little groove there. And so a tiny little incision allows an instrument to get in and elevate all the tissues more widely. Once we elevate those tissues, they're free to be positioned wherever we want them. And so that's a beautiful thing. The mid-face lift goes very nicely with the uh, endoscopic brow lift and with upper eyelid blepharoplasty. And then of course, lower eyelid blepharoplasty. Um, amount of time for healing, because I'm anticipating that question. Yeah, I'm already getting the messages, so go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so again, because the incision lines are so small, it's so, and they're all hidden, uh, you can get back to work after a week. You know, you'll have some swelling, but guess what? Swelling is beneficial in this area because that's what babies' faces look like too. They're filled with volume. So swelling is actually working to our advantage. The thing that works against us is if there's any black and blue, because you know you're going to get funny looks on the elevator uh, if you're all black and blue. So um, needles do that too, though. So, you know, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're talking about last or the same downtime? You're talking about a couple of weeks? Same downtime. Yep. Okay. One, one to two weeks. Okay. And so just so you guys understand, because there were some words, big words in there, I have to learn to talk in smaller words that aren't medical too. Um, is that really, these are, these are really just taking suture essentially underneath the skin through minimal incisions that are, that are not visible. So they're not outside the ear. We're not talking about behind the ears. You're talking about all hidden in the eye crease or hidden inside the mouth, kind of by the gum gum line, um, where the mouth meets the gums and really just hiding all of these. So nothing really visible to the naked eye, except under your hair. Right. Exactly. Okay. And do, do a lot of people do these endoscopic lifts? Is this something that you're specialized in? Well, it's definitely something you want to see a, a highly specialized person for. Um, the, uh, the effectiveness of it is going to be dictated by the amount of tissue eleva elevation, lifting it up as you can do. Now, as you get more aggressive with it, aggressive is a scary word, 
but for creating uh, changes that are visible, aggressive is our friend from a standpoint of, um, of the, the maneuvers that we're doing. So, uh, I, and I think when you're talking about trying to get an effective lift, you really have to understand the anatomy uh, because the facial nerve is the nerve that's responsible for uh, the muscle movement in the face. And um, the facial nerve branches are at risk in all of these facial procedures. So you certainly wanna to go to someone who's skilled, not only from a safety standpoint to be able to avoid injuries to those high risk areas, but also someone who's not afraid of those anatomical areas so that they can, when aggre aggressive maneuvers are required to really free the tissues up so that you can reposition them, uh, you'll be able to do it. Because we all have heard about things, I'm gonna ask the question, well, what about, um, the, uh, the thread lift, I've heard about a thread lift that doesn't even require any incision. Um, so the thread lift is something that does allow you to lift. Again, it's a suture uh, that, or the silhouette now that's one of the brand names um, that's out there. Uh, Lori, I don't know if you have other names that, that you wanted to mention about that. You're talking about PDOs? Or yeah. You, yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's actually so many right now that are new on the market. I mean, um, I've, I've been, you know, in the past I've used Euro threads, I've used Nova threads, um, we use lit on That's a new one. Um, but yeah, all, all simultaneous or, or I guess the word is whatever with S lift, um, right. They're just different versions of the same dissolvable suture. Exactly. Yeah. Which highlights, I mean, so the first word dissolvable, that's something we have to be cognizant yep. of because what that means is that that's a temporary effect. Right. So now, so we can argue that that's the most invasive of the lifting methods would be just with a tiny little needle poke uh, and then sliding the suture in a position and lifting it up with maximum force to lift these tissues up. And that is uh, very, seems to be very attractive on the surface. Uh, but the problem with it is, um, in, is that you're not, number one, not getting a maximal lift. I mean, just logically, if you think about it, uh, you're tying a string, pulling tissues up, gravity and the forces of those tissues being held to the bone on the undersurface and the skin on the supersurface just above that soft tissue um, is gonna continue to wanna pull that tissue back to its original position. So when I'm talking about being aggressive, I'm talking about just freeing the tissues up so that you can reposition them in a new location on the face, higher up, and then allow take advantage of the scarring process so that uh, the scar tissue heals and heals your face in a way that holds that tissue in the newly positioned space. So it's a really beautiful thing. One of the other things that I've encountered with um, patients who have undergone um, thread lifting or just suture type techniques without manipulation of the tissue by freeing it, which would be the surgical method to do it, um, is that imagine if one of those sutures tears on one side, but not on the other side. I actually have a colleague uh, in Canada who told me he, he's one of the earliest users of this, had done 300 patients, so had vast experience with it. Um, but, uh, and, then, and he had operated on his own wife in that fashion. And he stopped doing this procedure when one side of his wife's face fell and the other side stayed up. That is why you don't operate on your own way. But yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I joke. I say that's when a crochet hook um, and some numbing come in really handy. <laughs> you have to go fish out a fish out a thread. Um, knock on some wood. I have any around here, but exactly. Okay, 
So we've gotten some really good information. So we've talked about eyes. We've talked about mid face. Um, we've talked about kind of the endoscopic method and endoscopic. You do you do that awake? Do you do it under anesthesia? How are you performing those? Well, that can be done either under general anesthesia for patients who want to be completely asleep, or it can be done under twilight anesthesia, which is similar to what a patient might get when they get their wisdom teeth removed in the office or when they get a colonoscopy, um, that happy juice um, could be all that's required to, uh, to numb a person up and get them comfortable for the procedure. Okay. Yeah. Minimally so, invasive goes with rapid recovery, minimal swelling, uh, and um, therefore minimal pain. Okay. Um, so, all right, we've gotten the, the top of the face done and let's talk about, and I know you guys can't see, but I'm, my, my problem area, which is like right around my jawline, I have no chin. Um, you know, that Eastern European lack of chin that I have. So what do we do about the jowly jawline around the mouth kind of hanging? And well, I know you can tag neck into this cause it probably ties in very well. Um, can that be done endoscopically? Well, that's a really good question. And first of all, let's rewind a little bit. You look fantastic. So oh. I don't accept what you're saying about- I'm not uh, ready yet anyway, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep filling it up until I have to do it. There you go. We can talk about that last. There you go. We'll get to that. Um, yeah, so you could definitely do parts of the lower face through minimally invasive methods as well. But again, if you think about, so one of the major concerns when patients come in for- hey, I want a mini facelift, or I want just a neck lift. I don't want the full facelift. There's definitely a stigma attached to facelift surgery uh, on a number of levels. Uh, the first level is people think of it as um, perhaps uh, vanity that they never anticipated they would experience. But when you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you're feeling like you're 30 years old, uh, but you're looking at your, but as the person that's looking back at you is looking 70 with a turkey waddle neck and jowls along the jawline and things like that, um, you know, that is something that can be done still with rapid recovery, but it requires more manipulation of tissue than, uh, than what I think um, is uh, fair to put onto an endoscopic procedure. And it's for the same reason that we've already sort of highlighted, and that is, in order to get those tissues to stay in the position you want them uh, mobilized to or repositioned to, which means basically, hey, I want my tissues repositioned to what they looked like 20 years ago. Uh, and that's, um, so to do that, you've got to mobilize the tissue and allow it to heal in that new location. I think back to the eighties when I was a kid and um, you know, the hot uh, way to do people's hair was a perm. And the reason that people love the perm is because it was just, I remember those commercials for perms on television. Uh, it was just get up and go, you know, you twist your hair, your head around. I don't know, maybe you could describe that maneuver better. Taking <laughs> <laughs> up the head, you know, just yeah. so the hair is all ready to go when you hop out of bed. Gotcha. Exactly. So, um, you know, you get up and you shake it a little bit and uh, the hair is in all the position that it needs to be in order to look great. So, you know, people think about minimally invasive, but the thing to think about is what's the least um, maintenance therapy that's needed over time. And so a facelift that's done well, which will get your neck back to it was 20 or more years ago, 
and it'll get the jowls back to what they were 20 years ago. The jowls are the, the lines, the bulldog uh, lines along the jawline. Um, getting that back to that point 20 years ago and allowing it to heal in that new position uh, allows you to just get up and go and look beautifully refreshed every single day without the need to um, uh, you know, place all the makeup and the camouflage and things like that. And you feel great about yourself. You wake up, you look in the mirror when you're brushing your teeth or washing your face and you're happy with what you see back at you. So where, so where are those incisions? I know there's so many, um, and I guess the stigma, at least in my brain revolves around where maybe the downtime, but also where the, the incisions are placed, right? Where, where your skin's pulled to. And I guess back, you know, let's just say maybe 10, 15 years ago, um, some of the ways that we did these closures and incisions were a little bit different than they are now. So can you just, you know, maybe clarify or make people feel better one about how long a facelift lasts compared to some other procedures um, and maybe not having to go back in more than one time in a certain number of years um, and see where these um, incisions are placed. Well, those are really great questions. And um, I agree with you looking back even 10 years ago and 20 years ago, certainly, um, a facelift often looked really unnatural. And I think um, this is uh, a point that um, uh, I've learned over my 20 years in practice. I started practicing at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I was the director of uh, facial plastic and reconstructive surgery there. And that was an amazing opportunity for me to go around the world, literally. Uh, that's part of, their, um, part of their culture is that they um, encourage uh, physicians to go around the world and visit with all the top experts in the world. So as a young surgeon coming out, having been outstandingly trained uh, at one of the top fellowship training programs uh, in the world in facial plastic and reconstructive surgery, I felt really well-trained, but what really trained me was, you know, once I was on the job and I saw what it was like, and then I had the opportunity to go visit these world experts literally around the world in all the corners of the world. Um, and, uh, and see what does a natural result look like? What does a good result look like? And to me, natural is synonymous with good result. It's gotta be something that does not look pulled. It doesn't look uh, stretched. It doesn't look like you've walked into a windstorm and the wind is plastering your skin against your, your face and neck. It's gotta be something that no one can tell that you had anything done and it looks like you. Uh, and, uh, and that's my goal. So good plastic surgery, especially good plastic surgery of the face means it looks natural. It looks unoperated on. So that goes to your question. Where do you place the incisions? So the incisions need to be placed in a where, in a place where they're not going to alter the hairline because one of the telltale signs of the, um, traditional facelifts is that the hairline is altered. And that's something that I learned uh, while traveling uh, to see top uh, uh, facelift surgeons when I was a youngster. Um, so that means in, in the front of the hair, uh, in the temporal tuft, we call it, and also in the back of the ear uh, where the hairline um, extends. So we want to hide the incisions uh, and match up the hairline so that it looks natural and you can't see any of the scars. So the scars run within the uh, borders between the ear and the cheek. And then they go in a woman, in a female patient that goes behind the uh, tragus of the ear, which is the part of the ear where the earbud 
is hidden in part. Um, uh, so it kind of goes into the ear canal in that area, and then it goes around the earlobe, and then everything else is hidden behind the, behind the ear. So the incisions in that region happen to hide extremely well, uh, even the ones that are uh, on the cheek at the junction between the ear and the cheek. So they hide very, very well. The second important thing is, what is the right vector of pull for a facelift? If you think about it, gravity is working to pull us downward, straight down toward the center of the earth. It does not pull our, pull our faces backward. So the windswept uh, look that was a sign of maybe uh, prominence, wealth, and, uh, and a person who's taking care of themselves uh, 20 years ago uh, was, um, uh, was this pullback look of the facelift that really stretched things out. We talked about the nasolabial folds a bit earlier. That's the fold that goes from the corner of the nose and sort of uh, towards the corner of the mouth. Um, so it used to be that you needed to pull the face in a direction that was perpendicular, upward and perpendicular to that, that uh, uh, direction of that nasolabial fold. Um, but really uh, for the deeper tissues, we wanna pull those straight up vertically to reposition the tissues where nature placed them and where gravity pulled them down. And that's what makes things look natural is to pull the volume straight up uh, and to pull the skin back along the lines that the skin should run. So along the lines of the wrinkles, this way the wrinkles are going in the right direction and the soft tissue and volume is going in the right direction. And that's what will give a, a full facelift. So what does facelift treat? What is a full facelift? It's not, you should not be stigmatized by the word. It's not a bigger operation than a neck lift, truly. Um, I mean, there are ways to do mini neck lifts and we can talk about that in greater detail uh, another time. Um, there are ways to do minimalized, minimized uh, uh, neck lifts, exclusively neck lifts. And there, are, and there are certain patients who are candidates for that. We, um, again, we can discuss that later, but a facelift that um, creates a blended appearance between the neck and the cheeks and then the upper face as well, um, can be done very conservatively. It's not a huge operation. It doesn't mean that um, uh, you know, you're a frivolous or superficial person. All it's doing is restoring tissues to where they belong if gravity was not um, working against us in the aging process. And, and so um, to circle back and um, what's the downtime on something like a facelift? I know we talked about a couple of weeks with some of the endoscopic lifts. What about a facelift? So a uh, facelift would take, um, I tell patients the first week you're with a head wrap on your face 24 seven, pretty much. That's making sure that the tissues that we reposition are held in their new place by the wrap that we put in the operating room um, and a similar wrap afterwards. Uh, after that first week, I want you to remove the wrap and um, allow uh, gravity to drain the fluid that's causing the swelling. And it's at that point that I want you starting to mobilize a little bit more aggressively. That's during week two. Um, if you think about Hollywood celebrities who are walking out with their baseball caps pulled down, their big sunglasses uh, and um, things like that, that's somewhere between week two and three. So in other words, the incisions are hidden by the hair that's covering the incision lines in front of the ear. Uh, the glasses are covering the swelling of the eyes and uh, the hat is so that they're more anonymous. But that's how you can go out during week two to the grocery store 
uh, and remain um, anonymous. And then I like to tell patients that by the end of your third week after surgery, you can feel totally comfortable going to your favorite restaurant and being seen by people who you know and them not necessarily knowing that you had a facelift done. Now you and I, the patient and the surgeon are gonna know that the face is still swollen, but the average onlooker is just gonna look at you as though you look refreshed. So certainly there's still swelling, but um, it looks good enough to present to people who know you well. Okay. And, and just so you guys understand, when he was talking about vectors and pulling, we, we actually met at a, um, an Allergan conference um, training that was going over contour, um, contour and shadow. So, you know, in injectables, we have a very similar, I guess, dichotomy of what was done 10 years ago by um, physicians versus what's done now. And they were treating things in a way that probably, again, it made people look dysmorphic, right? They look like a little alien, like maybe the cheeks were too high, you know, the chin looked too sharp, things were too stiff, um, treating in planes that maybe weren't appropriate. And uh, we also, you know, we met over cutting steaks with a butter knife, but also <laughs> talking about, you know, the shadows and how to fix shadows. And that's really what he's talking about is pulling up in a, in a, in a perpendicular or straight up and down plane, which is counteracting gravity, right? Instead of pulling in a vertical or a horizontal fashion where you're really looking like you're, you're just, you're just disrupted. You know, you're kind of pinching your face against the glass, if you will, or that windswept look. Um, so I, I, on that note, I think that that brings me to my next question. Um, and I did have a question. So someone did ask me about the thread lift versus permanent versus um, non-permanent. And what happens when the threads dissolve? Um, do you go back to square one or is there, is it, is there any benefit to doing the thread, the dissolvable thread lift first before you go and have a permanent or a or permanent mid face lift? Um, so that was a question I just got as well. I don't know if you want to answer that. I can answer a little bit as well. You can start. I'll let you, I'll let, you uh, uh, let me know your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, thread lifts for me are rather new. I, you know, I've been doing them probably about a year and a half to two years at this point. And I feel like they have gotten better. Um, the, but we're talking about textured um, materials that don't have a lot of tensile strength. So you're not getting a ton of pull out of them. I say it's a really nice way to get an idea if that's something that you like the look of or to get an idea if, you know, the slimming of the jaw is what you want. But for, and if someone has what I would call medium grade skin where they're not too heavy and they're not too thin, it's really got to be a very perfect patient. Um, otherwise you can see, again, we're talking, when we talk about vectors, you can see the vector line, you know, you're, you can only pull in one direction. Yes. You can curve as many little pokey things around the face as you want to try to get it to connect to the connective tissue. But at some point on very thin skin, you're going to see the line and on heavy skin, it's not going to hold it. Um, I think it's a temporizing measure for most people. I think maybe it'll buy you a year or two. Um, but for the most part by the second year, I'm telling you not to waste your money anymore. And I'm sending you for a facelift. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are. And I actually, um, I would say that's more common than not. I would say, you know, I actually talk people out of it unless they are the perfect, maybe younger than middle-aged, maybe they've aged a little bit more quickly in their jawline and jowl, maybe even underneath their neck. They're not necessarily ready to go get a facelift because they're in their thirties or maybe even early forties. And it's a t something to temporize them for a little while. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I would totally agree with everything you just said. I think that there's some patients who just are so um, opposed to surgery, afraid of surgery, um, 
and will do anything uh, but do surgery. And so those patients are great candidates uh, for this. And many of them would be happy to repeat the process uh, whenever the suture lets go or becomes visible, things like that. Because uh, with relaxation, you can also see an unnatural tension on one of the strings or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, but, um, and then, you know, it's hard because uh, while you try to give the best advice and what you feel is in the patient's best interest, which is, I'll just say something really that's at the core of my existence as a, as a surgeon, um, truly uh, our, my job is to make patients happy and my job is to um, uh, do what I believe is the right thing for patients and serve the needs of the patient. Uh, that's something I learned early on in my career is that the needs of the patient come first. That's what the Mayo Clinic brothers, the brothers who started Mayo Clinic, that's one of the aphorisms that they put out. And again, that's part of the culture. And um, you know, I feel it a real privilege. And I know, Lori, you and I have spoken about this at length previously. I know you feel the same way. It's just such an honor that patients entrust us with their care and we take it seriously um, to the point where we're making the recommendations of what is in the patient's best interest. And so as much as in some cases, I try to explain you know, what your best interest is because of the permanence, because of sutures breaking, because of uh, it looking most natural to reposition whole blocks of tissue, um, some patients are not comfortable doing surgery and just want no downtime at all or minimal downtime, even less than the one week that we're talking about. And so in those circumstances, uh, doing the thread lift um, is the right thing for that patient at the time. Uh, and um, while we can guide uh, our patients as best as we, as best as we believe, um, they are uh, the primary dictator they're going to be the dictators of how we, it goes. And that's what we want. We want hundred percent buy-in from our patients. Right. Uh, I think they're happier that way. So um, I, I think there's a role for it. There are some permanent sutures that can be used. Uh, Gore-Tex sutures can be used with some of the devices. Uh, uh, some of the threads can be permanent. Um, and sometimes we can combine those uh, threads um, with even open surgical procedures, but also with thread lifts. And so sort of do some hybrid surgeries that are also really even more minimally invasive and they can work nicely. And so then they can hold for longer as long as the suture holds up, even if it's a permanent suture may not hold truly permanently, but, but often they can. Um, uh, and the tissues relax slowly. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm for it um, for the for that patient who is really averse to having a surgical intervention. Okay, I mean cost to benefit ratio too. I mean if you look at it, and that's I, I try to do that for all of my patients. You know this is none of our our stuff is necessarily cheap. So you know with the cost of a non permanent thread versus how many years are you going to do that before you're equaling what we would call a facelift, a mini lift, mid lift, whatever, whatever lift you're talking about that's surgical you know, it might not be worth it to do that for multiple years on end, unless you're really opposed to surgery. So I tell my patients that a lot too, and you're always fighting gravity. So at some point, we're not going to get you the result that you want. And when you talk about being happy with what you see in the mirror inside matching the outside, um, there's going to come a point and that probably brings me to our last 15 minutes, but there's going to come a point where I can't help you with all of the injectables and fillers and threads that we have. Um, so cost to benefit ratio is a big deal too. You know, you can only do so much every year before you're really looking at some kind of surgical intervention. So 
with that, um, I want to talk a little bit about non-surgical and not to really um, necessarily dissuade someone in one direction or the other, but I want to just explain, because I do get this question a lot. And actually I just got one um, on email too, that said, if I do a surgical intervention, let's just say I do a brow lift, do I still need Botox? Do I still need Botox around the eyes with a bleph? Um, so that was the question. I think, um, what my question is and how I want to go forward is really at what point do you still use lasers and Botox and fillers for your surgical patients? Or at what point do you switch them over mm -hmm. from one to the other? Um, so I think the first question is, do you use Botox still after someone gets a brow lift? Let's answer the, the email question first. So um, the answer is uh, yes. At some point after brow lift, most patients will be uh, using Botox. Uh, when I do a brow lift, uh, I like to get rid of the muscles, uh, truly get rid of the muscles that, that create the 11s or the ones okay. uh, in the glabellar area. So I actually remove those muscles. Um, which helps to uh, eliminate the need for Botox for a pretty long period of time in that central region. Uh, on the side, on the areas of the side where the crow's feet are, um, there's really no way to get rid of those, uh, those lines. So you're gonna need to continue Botox certainly in that region uh, once the muscle activity comes back, which could be you know even six months, let's say before. So it may be an extended period of time uh, before you, you have to uh, do that. And in the frontalis area, the forehead creases that go horizontally across the whole forehead. Um, some patients have more of those, some patients have less of those. Uh, the, um, those will need to be restarted as well in order to keep, it, keep things looking smooth and to preserve what we've achieved. The other thing is um, a lot of surgeons, and there've been studies on this, recognize that the muscle activity of the brow muscles in particular um, will play a role in where the brow heals after surgery. So uh, we, we intentionally may uh, paralyze, that's what Botox does or other similar, Xeomin, Dysport, Botox, all the different brands. That's what they do is they will um, paralyze those muscles so that uh, the tissues are not being pulled down and uh, there being a tug of war between the brow lift that raises the brow and the muscles that otherwise pull the brows downward. So we might do Botox before surgery and then three or four months after surgery to preserve what we've done and make sure it's healed in the right location, basically upward. And at what point, I mean, do you, and I know you do a lot of um, neurotoxins as well. At what point do you say to somebody, you know what, we're not getting you the brow lift you need because you know, these things can give you a slight brow lift. And I say slight because some people are more than others. Um, at what point do you say, you know what, this isn't really working for you where the muscle is just your, your depressors are, are winning essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Winning that tug of war, just, uh, the up, the up of the muscles that pull it up versus the tug of war of muscles pulling it down the depressors. Yeah. The, um, uh, I would say the point where you switch over is, uh, the right, the correct position for the brow should be once in a female should be one centimeter above the uh, bony orbital rim. 
So for the listeners out there, if you put your finger on the bony orbital rim and then feel where is the hair of your eyebrow or look in the mirror if they're um, tattooed or painted on, makeup on, and pay attention to where those eyebrows are. If they're less than a centimeter, especially towards the sides of the eye, the part, eyebrow, the parts closest to the ear, not closest to the nose, um, that's the part that we want to see a nice, smooth, upward um, uh, uh, elevation or flow of the brow upward in that lateral aspect. So if that's not a centimeter above the, um, above the bone of the brow, uh, of the upper eye and brow, then, um, and, and after the Botox has effectively raised it as high as it'll go, that's where you start thinking that you want to get that um, surgically treated, I would say. Okay. And what, let's, um, I know I didn't bring up SMAS, but I think I'll save that for a different talk. Let's um, talk about lasers. Are you, do you combo lasers with your surgical interventions? Are you a fan of just doing them before to get the collagen boosted? There's so many lasers out there guys. And I think kind of like uh, facelifts, it's all marketing, right? There's only a certain amount of technology out there available to us. Um, and I think as, as a surgeon or as an interventionalist, if you will, that you're probably more prone to use some CO2 lasers, um, maybe some intense radio frequency. You can totally correct me if I'm wrong, maybe some IPL for color. Um, so let's, let's talk about CO2 and radio frequency and tightening. Uh, do you combo that before and after your surgical procedures? Yeah, the answer is yes, definitely. I mean, there's pre-treatment, uh, again, most patients are, uh, not coming in and uh, ready to go with everything. Uh, some have had friends who've had it done and so they're ready to jump aboard. They know what a beautiful outcome surgery can give, but most patients want to, you know, uh, jump in the pool with their toe first, dipping in to uh, feel the temperature of the water. And so um, that's where the injectable fillers, uh, the neurotoxins, the Botox and uh, Dysport and Xeomins come in. That's where lasers and radio frequency come in all kinds of things that we can do to tighten the skin and uh, help reduce some wrinkles. Um, lasers are great at reducing some of the very fine lines, some of the discolorations, all of which um, uh, play a role in giving someone a more aged look. So as you well know um, from your own uh, experience, it's just incredible the power of some of those tools uh, to refresh and rejuvenate. And refresh is just the right uh, the right uh, word for it. Um, it can be made to, a patient can be made to look so natural and naturally refreshed that no one knows that something was done with a laser. So it's a beautiful um, uh, thing to do prior to. And then once the patient is comfortable uh, that they've dipped their big toe in and the waters are pretty comfortable there, and they're getting confident with your recommendations and seeing that you're able to deliver. Uh, just as you're um, uh, counseling them before the treatment starts, uh, then they'll be comfortable taking the next step and the next step. And that's really what a good relationship between doctor and patient is in my mind is, um, you know, we want to do what's least risky, what's least invasive uh, and what, um, what works well for the patient. And uh, uh, that's what the patient wants. And so we can gradually transition them uh, into that uh, easily. Oh, I'm told that we have four minutes. So here's what I'm going to do. Instead of us trying to rush through all of these um, interventions, I, I want to ask and pick your brain for a minute. What laser, and this is going to be a kind of an impromptu, what laser is your favorite laser for tightening? 
Um, that's, that's not fully ablative. Let's start there. Not a fully ablative kind of meaning like you look like a burn victim for you guys that don't know. Um, that has minimal downtime, you know, maybe takes three sessions or so. I mean, my favorite laser for that is fractionated CO2 laser. Yeah. Um, Agreed. Yeah. What fractionated means is that um, uh, the entire laser beam is not contacting the skin at one time so that there's normal, unmanaged, untreated skin in between those very, very fine laser beams that are treating uh, certain spots. And that allows the skin to very rapidly heal. And that's a beautiful laser. And I do it in conjunction with facelifts, all the different facelifts or eyelid lifts that I might do. Uh, many patients will choose to get it done at that time. And uh, uh, we love that as a, as a um, uh, contemporaneous treatment for those patients. Perfect. And that would be my, sa- my same uh, answer. Um, I also actually love um, radio frequency with microneedling. I find for people that don't want it, the downtime, um, we get some really, really nice results on that fine micro fine lines that man, oh man, I just can't feel if I try all day. Um, I call them roadmaps. So that is one of my favorites as well. Um, so I think what we'll do is we'll bring Dr. Freeman back another time and we'll discuss um, some of the other non-surgical interventions. I think one of the biggest questions that I've had on that I haven't addressed, and I'm going to give you like two minutes so that people don't pick your brain apart cost. How much cost are we talking about? Are we talking about $20,000? You know, are we talking about $5,000, $4,000 for some of these procedures? Well, I would say it's variable. Um, and, uh, yeah. So the, uh, brow lift, each of these different procedures that we've spoken about, brow lift, laser, eyelid lift, facelift of different varieties, um, are each separate procedures, uh, depending on the needs of the patient. Some will come in just for the brow lift, some for the eyelid lift, some just for the facelift and the neck lift, some just for the laser. And then you've got patients who come in for what we call the blue plate special, which means getting it all done at once. Um, if they're going to take the time to, uh, to do it and, uh, uh, then, uh, so when you're talking about a blue, the rich and famous anymore is really what I'm getting at. Thank you for clarifying. Exactly. Yeah. It's totally for the average patient. Yeah. In fact, there's statistics, 70% of the patients who undergo cosmetic procedures like this, uh, may earn $60,000, uh, or so. So under $70,000, uh, 70% of patients, it's not for the rich and famous. It's for everyone. And um, we love all our patients. On that note, it's for everyone. So everyone that's listening today, (laughs) um, Dr. Freeman does do consults at um, Refresh, my office there. Um, We can set you up there. You can also reach out and find him online at University of Pennsylvania. Um, He also has an office in, what's the town? Is it? Radnor. Radnor. Um, That you can see him so you don't have to go to the city. You can also stay tuned for some more shows with him. We will be doing some more shows and, and break this down further but we'll see you next week. This is Dr. Lori Gerber. Um, and next week, I believe we're going to be doing um, some talking about um, my post COVID and my wellness patients and bring on a bunch of patients to um, discuss their um, issues. So if you want to tune in again at 6 PM Eastern standard time with Dr. Lori Gerber on anti-aging unraveled, and you can meet someone else like Dr. Freeman, or maybe he'll join us again really, really soon. Um, if I'm really stuck, um, he is, um, one of the best people I've ever met by the way. So just, I'm going to make him turn red for these last couple seconds, but he is a great person in general as a surgeon, he's phenomenal, but as a human being, he is just wonderful. So, um, I want to encourage everyone. If you want a really great consultation and just someone to give you an honest opinion, um, it is absolutely Dr. Freeman.
So on that note, we can just talk freely because we're almost done and we're going to be heading out soon. But, um, so what is your favorite procedure that you've done internationally? I'm going to end with that. Well, I love cleft lip. It's life-changing for, uh, for kids who otherwise may be shunned, in fact, left uh, for dead at the end of their uh, family farm because they don't want to care for those children that they feel have the devil in them. Um, so bringing them back to their families or to an adoptive family is amazing. Well, thank you. I'm going to say over and out and uh, see you next time. Thanks. Thank you. All clear. Great job today, everyone.